talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board and... A word of caution. Most are experiencing leftover fatigue and have their top button undone. Sheesh! Here's Scott Thompson! Speak for yourself there, fella. I'm fully clothed. Proud of it. I think he's at school with a shirt off, is he? Uh, good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. And as Kurt introduced, everybody is here. And a new song from the all uh, Arkells. The kids are all excited about it. They're all dancing around their perspective uh, spots, uh, including Will, whose song it was. And, of course, Diana, who's just an absolute massive uh, Arkells fan. So, uh, everybody, who wants to explain uh, this song? Okay, well, I'll go first before we get Diana's uh, masterful review of it. Arm and uh. Arm by the Arkells. It's leading up to their new album, which is coming out. And uh, there's also some other cool Arkells news uh, happening around the station, but I'll let someone else introduce that part. Am I introducing that? No, so, I was... Oh. Uh, <laughs> tomorrow. Tomorrow <laughs> on Good Morning Hamilton, uh, Max Kerman going to be there with Rick. And, right uh, on. I'm sure discussing all of this and, uh, and, and the new song and the inspiration from it. It'd be interesting to see how bands and how music and culture kind of changes post-pandemic. Yes. Do you think it's going to be the same as it was before the pandemic? I mean, you know, I think people are going to be excited to be out and happy. and But I think people are a little bit more conscious now than they were before. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how artists interpret that. Thoughts, kids, among the class? Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree. I or think- do you think it's just a party, party attitude now, Diana? I think it's like people have been inside for too long and they're just itching yeah. to get out. And once they're out, it's party. Yeah. I know. There you go. All right. I, tomorrow on... Go- oh, sorry, Will. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say what struck me about this is because the Arkells have really experimented with their sound over the last few years. And during the pandemic, we had their uh, their acoustic uh, uh, release yeah. they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then this is a little bit more... This sounds a lot more like Morning Report. Like it sounds like yeah. a bit of a return to uh, what they were doing a few years ago. And I mm. guess it's a bit of that nostalgia almost that comes with... Uh, you know, the whole theme of the song is kind of looking back on who you've held on to, who you've been in touch with during these uh, difficult times. That, I remember yeah. I remember Max saying prior to the pandemic when we had him on that there was they had an album in the can and ready to go on tour. And they were yeah. going on a big stadium arena tour kind of thing and supporting other acts. And then obviously it just it, it shut down. And then, as Will said, hence the acu- the acoustic album uh, that came that, that came out. Campfire songs, wasn't it? Campfire and, chords, yeah. Campfire chords, sorry, campfire songs. Like that, never Same mind. <laughs> that takes me back to Cub Scout days. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I digress. But no, so I think it's going to be fascinating to see how things evolve uh, coming out. And again, tomorrow on Good Morning Hamilton, uh, Rick Zamperin will be interviewing Max Kerman. So make sure you tune in for that. Lots of chatter about space recently, including involving SpaceX, Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic, all that sort of stuff. Well, what does a real astronaut think about all of this let's bring in chris hadfield retired canadian space agency astronaut engineer science communicator singer former fighter pilot former commander of the international space station and author of an astronaut's guide to life and a new novel the apollo murders which uh is now available for you in stores let's bring in a true canadian legend chris hadfield is with us chris thanks for the time hope you're well I'm well. What a beautiful evening as the sun's coming down. It's gorgeous in southern Ontario today, Scott. 
What's it like to see that view from space? It goes really fast because you're going around the world at uh, five miles a second. So you drive an entire sunset or sunrise in about 15 seconds just because you're heading over the, over the curve. So it's, it's like uh, you get all of the colors and textures of it, but super accelerated. It, it's, it's kind of uh, surreal looking. And I watched, you know, I, went, I saw 2,650 of them. So I have pretty, pretty amazing memories. Man, I'm getting chills up my spine just listening to you describe that. Uh, talk about Let's talk about the Apollo murders. I mean, you're a person who has achieved more than most will ever dream of achieving. Why a novel? Well, I thought it would be a fun challenge, uh, and I've always enjoyed writing. And, and my first three books, have you know, they've all been bestsellers around the world. And I just thought, wonder if, if I could tell the story of spaceflight, if people could actually see what it's like and I could really viscerally get into it by making it a fiction story. How do people actually think and react when things are going well and badly? And it's, it's so, you know, it's such a fascinating time. Like 95% of the things in this book really happened. And, and over half of my characters are real people. And, and so weaving this twisted plot in amongst what was actually happening in the world in the spring of 73 was was a whole bunch of fun and the, the reaction of the book worldwide already is i mean today's my launch day for the book and yeah. uh, you know james cameron loves it and andy weir who wrote the you've got some amazing credential yeah, like amazing crazy. people have yeah. given you some great support on this book it's uh, yeah i'm i mean frederick forsyth who wrote the day of the jackal he th- and james patterson and anyway so uh, they should know better, but I'm really delighted that uh, that you know they think I did a good job of writing the book. And I think when when you read the book, The Apollo Murders, you'll come away with a, a better visceral sense of uh, what it's actually like to be in space while things are happening. Uh, Chris Hadfield, his new book, The uh, uh, Apollo Murders, which hit store shelves today, The Apollo Murders. All right, lots of interest in space right now, Chris, uh, because of what's happened with uh, the SpaceX, Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic, all of that sort of thing. Now we're hearing about William Shatner going up in space. There's been people who have criticized when the billionaires took off and said, well, you know, this isn't right. How do you describe what we're seeing happen and the interest this has generated? Well, I think obviously it's it's fun and interesting to criticize billionaires, and and they are pretty imperfect people. But hmm. I think it's maybe uh, also worth looking at what has happened, like how our technology has so rapidly advanced. We've gone from like the, the Wright brothers in 1903 to airlines, or or, or uh, I don't know when Henry Ford was starting to roll out the Model T. You know, people said in in 1912, if you'd asked them what they want, they would have said faster horses because they didn't realize how uh, a new technology can radically change transportation norms. And, and, And we have gone from spaceflight that used to be impossible when I was born. No one had ever flown in space to then only something that super hyper trained you know, test pilots like myself can do it. And, and, and we're only a trillionaire could afford to do it. You had to be a nation. But the technology has improved so much that now this summer, three different companies, they've all been around for 20 years or so, but they've all, this summer in a six-week period, they've sort of all reached the capability that a private citizen can buy a ticket to space. And that's, yeah, it's still expensive. And our regulatory bodies haven't caught up with it. And I don't know what the economic model is going to look like. But the advent of the technology 
that then allows us to truly see the world and, and keep track of, you know, what we're doing to it and, and do the science and, and, you know, monitor ourselves. That, that is where this is all leading. And so I, I, I also think it's fun that Captain Kirk is, is getting a chance to fly in mm. space. I know, I know Bill Shatner and, and he's 90 and, and this is going to be a pretty thrilling ride for him tomorrow. But, but I think the big picture of the human ingenuity that is allowing this to happen, that's the part that's really important for human history. Are you surprised at the reaction to some people with those uh, flights with the billionaires? No, I, I think if COVID has taught me one thing, it's don't be surprised with people's reactions. Mm. And, and, I mean, reaction and judgment are the easiest thing. Um, the hard part is, is, you know, actually digging in to the actual numbers and the science and the reality of it and then trying to put things into historical context. And I think it's important that we do that. I'm by no means you know, 100% approving of what's going on. But uh, if we look at, you know, everybody uses a GPS or we use cell phones or we have uh, weather forecasting like we've never had before. We have communications right across the country. We have uh, awareness of what's going on with climate change and environmental change. All of that is 100% because we can see and measure it from high above in space. And so the technology is, you know, you need you need to look at the good and the bad always and figure out how this is going to fit in. And people get a little fascinated with the fact that, you know, it's Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and they're very polarizing figures. But, you know, just like Howard Hughes was and Henry Ford was, and, you know, good point. Those, those people were very polarizing at their time, too. What about William Shatner being 90? Yeah. Yeah, isn't that amazing? I mean, he's super. I've done lots of things, like he's a friend, but lots of things with Bill. And, and he's, I mean, he works uh, every day and, and long hours. And he's, you know, he's in good physical shape and perfect mental shape. So there's, there's a lot of 20-year-olds that, you know, couldn't successfully <laughs> do what he's going to do tomorrow. So it's not age that matters, it's fitness. And and um, and so I think he's done a nice job of of keeping himself in, 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 you know, good enough shape. And I, I just, it's great. You know, uh, he was so inspirational to me as a kid growing up here in Southern Ontario, you know, it, it was all fiction, but still he set an example of what a spaceship commander could be. And then I, I went on to be a spaceship commander and from the space station, I had like a 45 minute talk with Bill one day and we just compared, you know, his pretend spaceship to my real one. And then I've done a bunch of things with him since so it, it's you know it's a very brief space flight. He's taken a good, a pretty good sized risk tomorrow, but he's ninety, and you know he's in, <laughs> that's okay. And uh, and and I think he's going to come back with a renewed sense of wonder of the world, and 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 maybe that's the point. Colonel Chris Hadfield has been with us, retired Canadian Space Agency astronaut, and of course uh, his new novel, The Apollo Murders, which has just hit store shelves today, uh, talking about the recent interest in space, a true Canadian hero. Chris Hadfield, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. Nice to speak with you, and you also. Be well. Uh, we're, we're talking about a, an upcoming segment uh, in regard to an Anos poll and which leaders should leave. Dave says all of them. 
Well, that'd be a pretty simple poll. Uh, it's not quite that simple, Dave, but uh, you're not far off, believe me. Uh, we'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on next hour. All right, Paul McCartney has done an interview with the BBC, and, you know, I- I'm not sure if this question was ever answered or if it's just changed. The answers have changed over the years, because I always thought it was Yoko Ono that broke up the Beatles. At least that's what the folklore was at the time, as far as my- what my older sister said. Let's bring in Eric Alper, music pop culture expert. He is with us now. Now, Eric, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, everything is great. Look, I'm just ready to finally admit after all these years that I was the one that broke up the Beatles. I thought it was. You know, <laughs> one of those little secrets nobody knew about. So why is this coming out now? Why is this a, a conversation now? It's coming out now because Paul McCartney is doing a lot of media this year over a number of different things. He has a 400-page book of his lyrics that come out next month the amazing get back Beatles documentary that is six hours that was put together and curated by peter jackson the guy who did all of the hobbit films um so it's coming out now as well because it's just the right time i think for a little bit of revisionist history on all counts i mean what the Get Back documentary will show is that they were quite happy with one another as opposed to the grumpy, mad, sad anger towards one another um, Beatles that we all thought that that's how they broke up. But this documentary will show that, no, they actually pretty much got along. So that changes our perception about the band. And I think Paul has a way of kind of coming out every now and again saying actually it kind of happened like this and i think you're right i don't know if he was ever point blank asked this question before but it's certainly interesting that he puts the emphasis on the fact that john lennon instigated the band split because quite frankly they all left at one point or another within a year of that ringo left george left paul was the only one that wanted to keep the band together so did this story not come out way back when simply because Paul was just so upset about all of this? He just um, he couldn't face the fact that John just wanted to move on and their lives were going in different directions. I think in, I think two years, three years after the split of the Beatles, Paul didn't want to have anything to do with that former group. He was already a pretty yeah. successful solo artist. Um, with a number of albums. He was very much in love with his wife, Linda. They were all set to go out on tour together, playing college campuses way below their pay scale of what they were used to in the Beatles. And I think he just didn't want to concentrate on it. I think he was just thinking that he needs to just make sure that he lands on his two feet because um, you kind of believe all the amazing press when you're Paul McCartney, and rightfully so at that age. I mean, it was, it was he wasn't even 30 when the Beatles split up. So I think he wanted to make sure that the emphasis was put on the forward thinking of the group rather than starting to blame things. And also, I think he kind of fit the narrative of everybody's, at the time, hatred towards Yoko Ono for mm. allegedly and apparently back then splitting up the Beatles, taking John away and being in the studio when, you know, people and girlfriends and wives aren't really supposed to be there. So I think it fit the narrative quite easily for somebody like Paul. And I also think that he just didn't want to concentrate on why they split up. So was it as simple as John wanted to chase social injustices? John wanted to chase social causes, and 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 Paul McCartney just wanted to continue to be a rock star and see how far we could go with this stuff. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, we are going back to when Ringo left back in 1968. He thought that during the the White Album sessions that he was just ignored, that he was undervalued, he was underappreciated. So he left the band only to come back after taking a short holiday. Then in 1969, George Harrison leaves um, and the Beatles are like, okay, well, we'll just go get Eric Clapton to replace him. And they were serious about it. They thought that somebody like Eric Clapton would be playing as good as George, if not better, with none of the baggage whatsoever. Um, weirdly, 50 years later, kind of brings a little bit more baggage to it. But I think with with um, with that question, um, John, I think, just wanted to be with Yoko and do the things that inspired both of them. And sometimes when you've gone through heaven and hell and back in a band, hmm. you don't really want to have a majority ruling out your ideas because sometimes you think, well, the reason why this band is so successful is because of my ideas. And who are you to say no to this? And why do I have to teach you how to play this? It's just so much easier if I do it myself. And that's kind of what happened to the end of the band is everybody saw everybody else as just members of their own backing band. And, you know, when you think about how small this period was and how small this cycle was, if they could have just hung on and if uh, and fortunately, unfortunately, if John had not been killed, uh, I mean, it's obvious. I think they would have come full circle because, again, it just happened so quickly uh, and and within such a short period of time. I think once they have room to, to, to grow and breathe a bit, they they might have appreciated it more. Yeah. And nobody nobody knew that. I mean, yeah. now mental health and, and artists taking breaks away from the spotlight and the touring and hotels and being away from your family. Now that's super important to, for people to have. Um, back then, I mean, seven years, that doesn't seem like a very long time at all now. But yeah. they were probably one of the longest running groups at that time. They were, you know, hermits, hermits and everybody else. They split beforehand. There's only a handful of people that started back in the early 1960s that were even around come 1970. So they kind of went through their life cycle as best as everybody else did. It's just really sad. I agree with you. But, you know, we couldn't have had all those amazing solo albums. Good point. Like all things must pass. Good and point. Yeah. And John's and even Ringo's stuff together. Uh, get back uh, that special. When's it out? When the documentary? Uh, and it comes out mid-September. I don't have the date in front of me, but I have a feeling that the entire world will know the date. <laughs> it's in November, yeah, is it not? It's in a couple of weeks, for sure. Yeah, okay. All right, Eric Elper with us, uh, talking about all things Beatles, and it wasn't Yoko after all these years. Eric, thanks for the time. Be well. No problem. Thanks so much for having me, man. We'll talk soon. All right, Eric Alper, music and pop culture expert, talking about the Beatles, uh, Paul McCartney and the BBC saying, no, don't blame me, man. It was John that broke the band up. Uh, lots of stuff for Beatles fans coming up in the next year or so. The truth and only the truth. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Uh, you know, I, I said almost immediately after the last election, it would be interesting if we could hold an election, not have to go through it all, of course, uh, like the next day, the next week, and see how people's uh, opinions would have changed. Uh, then, of course, there was uh, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation and what all happened there. Uh, and, and anyway, long story short, we're coming out of hopefully a global pandemic. We have finished a national federal election and Canadians' opinions are 
they're changing. And an interesting article uh, in the Globe and Mail today, and Nano's Research has done some uh, very cool research in regard to how people are feeling post-election. The headline is, according to Nano's, uh, Nano's Research poll, Canadians most often said... Maxime Bernier and Justin Trudeau should leave their roles following the election. They were the two most common answers in a poll that asked respondents of which of Canada's federal party leaders would they like to see resign as a result of the outcome of this year's election. Uh, 37% of respondents told Nano's research it was Mr. Bernier, the leader of the far-right People's Party of Canada, should resign, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who leads the Liberals, was the second most frequent choice at 36%, uh, a percentage point different, and then dropping down uh, into the 20s for Conservative Party leader Aaron O'Toole, and then uh, Jagmeet Singh of the NDP and the Bloc leader and so forth. So a quarter of respondents said none of the party leaders should resign. So 25% said, no, leave it the way it is. And Nanos goes on to say, he says, that suggests that one out of every four Canadians are happy with what's on the political menu, but seven out of every 10 Canadians, seven out of every 10 would like to see a political change, a menu change, a political menu change in one respect or another. Uh, that is a result of the last election, which nobody wanted. Let's bring Andre Perella in, a professor in the political science department, Wilfrid Laurier University, and with us now. Andre, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing very well. Hope you're doing well as, as well. Hope your weekend went well. Yes, and you too. Andre, are you surprised by this? Why, why the change in attitude? It seems that we want change after the election. Well, I think we saw signs of a desire for change even before in surveys that asked people about um, whether they they desire a, a change or whether they they want to, to see the status quo, that's usually a good indicator of whether the party in power is in trouble. And we saw that there were signs that people want to change, and uh, they didn't quite get any change. And, and um, they probably got the exact same thing that they got a few years ago. Um, mm-hmm. But um, yeah, this survey from Nanos is interesting in, in in terms of the two leaders that most stuck out. Uh, but if you look at it regionally, it'll give you a slightly different story, and you'll see that, that for instance, um, in in Atlantic Canada, uh, Trudeau and O'Toole are tied. Uh, Bernier still sticks out as the one most likely, most commonly cited as the one that people want to see resign. Uh, in Quebec, Bernier again, uh, but but here, here again, you know, Aaron O'Toole and Justin Trudeau are tied. It's really in the prairies where you start seeing things that are a little bit different, where Fifty uh, percent of respondents in the prairies want to see Trudeau resign, but that's probably an attitude that has been the same for for years. Um, so mm. it, it it depends on the region. It, I'm, I'm also curious, and the Nanos polled at least their public information does not reveal this. I'd like to see how people of, of the same party view their own leader, and I think that is the key question. Mm. I'm sure that, uh, there are internal polls that the Liberals have held among uh, Liberal members about what they think of Trudeau. I think that is what's potentially the uh, a number that can cause earthquakes. Uh, obviously, Maxime Bernier, known as a, a bit of a right-wing extremist, uh, divisive, so you can see maybe that reaction. Why the prime minister? Well, exactly. Uh, uh, I, I think if you ask, reword this question in any other way, uh, basically say, who don't you like? Uh, Maxime Bernier would probably still come out on top for the same reasons. He, he's mm-hmm. far right, but he's also a brand of politics that we're not used to in Canada. We, you know, Canadians yeah. like to see themselves as a good guy, uh, as nice, as polite, 
Um, but uh, so this is a totally different brand. But Trudeau, well, I think for the last couple of years, there's been some some doubts about the sunny ways that Trudeau promised. There's been there's the, the the liberal brand and the Trudeau brand has, has been tarnished with uh, you know scandal after scandal. So I'm not surprised about Trudeau as well for different reasons. Can he win another election? Can he win a majority? Um, you know, anything's possible in in politics. Uh, we've, we've seen political leaders who have had to practically go into exile only to come back and, and win majority. So this politics has as a way of, of cleansing reputations, uh, unlike mm. other aspects of life. It's really an, an odd, an odd sector. Uh, so of course he can win a majority. He just has to stop making mistakes. Um, but uh, whether the electorate has tired of Trudeau, I think, is the big question. Uh, whether there's any appetite or any capacity for forgiveness and to give him another chance, as they say, well, I don't know. Uh, because uh, w- w- there was some thought that, all right, so he won another minority government. Now, you know, behave. And what did he do? And, you know, he messed it up on, on the yeah. National Day of Reconciliation. So, again, you know, the palms slap forehead saying, there he goes again. And so mo- any more of these, these uh, inappropriate actions are likely not to make people want to give him another chance and so there is a many risk. have said many have said any one of these would have upset another leader and and it would have been over but he seems to uh he, he seems to be able to withstand this the interesting that this poll was taken between september 30th and october 3rd obviously the national day for truth and reconciliation just at the beginning of that would that have influenced any of this do you think oh possibly i'm pretty sure that, that the negative press and, and and all the negative uh narrative around Trudeau, around around the way he, he mishandled uh, the, the 30th of September, had an impact on this poll. I, I would, I'd be very surprised if it didn't. So, moving forward, uh, what do you think the next election will bring to Canadians? Do you think it will be here sooner rather than later? Um, I think it all depends on the NDP, doesn't it? Um, I, I don't know, but if, if, it, if it's sooner, then I, I, I don't know if there'll be much of a change. I think if Canadians are looking for something different, right now, at this present time, it's not on offer. Uh, and maybe Aaron O'Toole will find a way to, to, uh, to um, consolidate his leadership and rebrand the Conservative Party into a, a form that is more appealing to more Canadians and, and pose a, a formidable threat to the Liberals, maybe. I don't know. It all depends. A lot of things happening right now. So there is uh, uh, an election review happening with the Conservative uh, Party. The, 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 there may be a, a, definitely going to be a changes in the cabinet. We'll see how that shapes up. And, and so it's unclear where things are going. There's a lot of a lot of storms uh, over over Ottawa hmm. right now. So we'll see where it all clears up. As to what what the climate will be like. But right now uh, there is there's an appetite for change and. Um, I'm not too sure if we're getting it from any any of the parties. Andre Perella with us, professor in the political science department, Wilfrid Laurier University. A new Nanos poll says seven out of ten cha- uh, Canadians want a change in their federal political menu. Uh, Andre, or rather, Andre, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. You too. 
Now, you might remember the name Major General Danny Fortan. He was uh, in charge of the federal government's uh, rollout of, uh, of vaccination, the vaccination process. Remember when all of the uh, supplies started coming in uh, in great quantities as of May up until then, of course, uh, just sporadically. Uh, that's when everybody was complaining, Why, where, where is it in the fridge? Why is it all in the fridge? And then we had to learn about supply and demand and supply chain management and that sort of thing. Well, Danny Fortin was in charge of a lot of that and then was removed uh, as part of uh, Canada's COVID-19 vaccine, uh, vaccine distribution campaign. And now a federal court justice issued a ruling uh, today siding with the federal government lawyers who had argued that Fortin's application for a judicial review of his removal from the role should be struck down and the military grievance process uh, used by him instead. So is this a, a, about process, uh, the wrong process being used? What has happened here? Let's bring in Christian Leprec, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald-Laurie Institute and is with us now. Christian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, I am. Good afternoon, Scott. So what has happened here, Christian? Is this, uh, you know, a situation where uh, the Major General just used the wrong process here? What has happened? Explain it to us. Yeah, I think what uh, Major General Fortin was essentially trying to assert is that uh, since the decision to remove him appears to have been made outside of the chain of command, and chain of command simply implemented More than 700 students. decision, uh, that uh, the um, the remedy could not come from inside that same institution. Uh, and the courts clearly said that uh, the general has to seek the same redress process as any other military member would when it comes to uh, their removal, their suspension, uh, promotion, and so forth, and that these redress processes continue to apply, and unless and until the general can demonstrate uh, that there are procedural or substantive shortcoming within the internal redress process, the general must exhaust that redress process uh, before he can then appeal to the federal court for a review. Now, the general now has two options. He can try to um, exhaust that redress process internally. Uh, presumably, he's not looking to do that, and he went to the federal court because he either doesn't have faith in the internal redress process uh, or he believes that the redress process is tainted, um, or he has the option to try to appeal uh, the federal court's ruling. And uh, it appears that his legal team, that's likely the uh, way that his legal team is going to take this matter. It's, of course, uh, unprecedented for federal courts. And so the courts are also very careful in terms of not overreaching here because they don't want to set precedent, for instance, for other generals that might find themselves, um, that might have grievances within their chain of command uh, concerning possible suspension, removal, promotion, and so forth. Um, to then uh, open up the immediate uh, process of going to the federal court to seek a um, to seek a remedy. So I think the courts are uh, really treading new ground here and are very careful uh, in trying uh, in making sure they don't appear to be uh, overreaching the authorities that they have been granted in this matter. My next question was, why did he choose this avenue? You you, you pretty much answered that in the sense that he didn't have faith in. Um, in, I guess, the other means of, of arriving this, was this sort of what you would call an end run? And at the end of the day, that's what would stop this. 
No, I think this was a genuine concern that this is a matter that uh, his legal team and the general beliefs uh, is not within the remit of the internal grievance process um, or that the grievance process is not going to be able to serve um, uh, the general under these circumstances in an independent and objective uh, manner. Um, and the court has uh, now provided him essentially with uh, telling that the court believes that this is the appropriate process to follow. And that, uh, but it appears the judgment leaves open the opportunity for the general to return to the federal court once he has exhausted all his internal, uh, internal options. The challenge here is, of course, the longer you're out of command, uh, the less likely you are by the military to get reinstated and simply to be able mm. to be forced to retire. So going through that whole re, uh, grievance process internally, then perhaps having to go back to the federal court um, would likely be a career ending move because of the time um, out of command for Major General Fortin. And so this is um, he, he is running up against the clock here. So what are his options moving forward? Well, it appears that the federal court has not given him a whole lot of options other than telling him that this is something he has to work out with his own institution. There are proper procedures in place. He has to follow those procedures. Um, and um, we'll see what uh, what happens on appeal here. Um, but it appears that the courts are uh, are playing this uh, playing this very safe. So uh, will this just be death by delay? What's in this for him to keep this this uh, process moving forward? Well, I think this is certainly, I think, probably what uh, uh, what the Prime Minister's office is looking for with both uh, Admiral McDonald and uh, Major General Fortin, uh, that uh, you simply uh, attrit your way out of uh, what they perceive to be a challenge. There are different issues here, given that uh, generals do serve at pleasure. Um, and so um, part of this is also a challenge about the uh, power and the remit and the authority that the political authority has uh, simply to remove members of the chain of command. And you could say that a chief of the defense staff is very much, since it is a uh, governing council appointment, is very much within uh, the uh, remit of the crown, that is to say the prime minister in this case, to appoint and therefore also to remove or to suspend. Whereas you might argue that a major general who is uh, two steps removed in terms of rank from the chief of the defense staff would not uh, be within the direct remit of the crown to decide to make basically operational decisions. So in some ways, Major General Fortin here has a stronger case than does uh, Admiral McDonald. And we can see that because Admiral McDonald is choosing the path of essentially uh, uh, public diplomacy and making his case publicly, um, whereas Major General Fortin is looking to seek redress uh, through the judicial system. Christian Leprec with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Forget about his two cents. Scott has an entire vault filled with opinions. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Uh, time for another uh, session just to plow through what's happening in the news and what everybody's thoughts are. Good to see all of you. Diana and Ted, welcome. Thank Hope you had you. a great long weekend. Yeah. Well, uh, Thanksgiving, and uh, we all have reasons to be thankful. And uh, it was, as you say, a long weekend, so even better. Mm-hmm. Is everybody's top button uh, done up? Just to check here. Top button check around the room, around the table. Here we go. No, everybody's everybody's silent on it all. Wearing all yoga right. pants. <laughs> <laughs> I've got stretchy jeans on. Got the stretchies on. Yeah, what the heck. So uh, the question I want to ask, we'll start with you, Diana. Did you extend 
your little group there for Thanksgiving, did you have the same people you had last year? Did you let a few more people in this time? We didn't have anybody last year, I don't think. Um, but th- yeah, this you year, this year was nice. It was my mom, my dad, my brother, and uh, also my in-laws as well. So that was nice. They they so all get along, and it was yeah, it was yeah. very nice. Yes, very very. And my See, grandpa, my grandpa. May say, yeah. Some people may say, you know, you know what, it's nice to have the people back, but then maybe it's not. We kind of like that year and a half off. Like Ted. Ted, yours, was it different this year for you? Uh, well, we didn't do anything last year either because of the pandemic. So it was just a uh, yeah. very small thing with, uh, you know, both of our daughters and, uh, you know, uh, and the grandbabies and everything else. And it was fine. And, uh, you know. How the, many grandbabies two, do you have now? Two. There you go. So. How old are they? Uh, three and uh, six months. We were uh, lucky enough to have my niece, who uh, I haven't met her new daughter because she's just like three or four months old, yep. uh, which was great. And then uh, the last one we saw, who's now walking around, she was as young as the one is now. So it's been great to see them uh, that, that we didn't see last year. It's it's great to see people, anybody, yeah, uh, especially family. So yeah, it, it was very nice. Although, although. <laughs> We had to be up there about four o'clock. Now, as you you know may know, I'm a Green Bay Packer fan. The Packers are playing the Bengals. The Packers are driving down the field toward the end. Of, my wife said, "Okay, let's go." I said, "This game's going into overtime, and you want to yes, go where? <laughs> so, We're going into the end zone." So, as it turns out, I got up there just in time to see the overtime, but it's like the timing couldn't have been worse. Yeah, we. Oh were... man, so. Did you? Oh, Diana's echoing the same yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. See, I we were watching the Browns game. See, uh, my family Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving and football—they all go together. Yeah. And, so why uh, not just set up the TV trays? <laughs> no, that's not allowed. No, you know that's that's a little gauche. I think. <laughs> Will, did you extend it this year? Uh, no, it was, uh, I just went and visited with my mom and, uh, we just had our usual family Thanksgiving, although we both had to pause and try to remember if we even had Thanksgiving last year and then realized, no, no, we did, but yeah, small turkey and a lot of pie and quinces and all sorts of desserts that, yeah, still got to work through. Will does have the top button undone. All right, let's move to the poll question of the day, uh, capacity issues. And this has had a lot of people confused. Uh, opening up for stadiums, concerts, that sort of thing, but not your local restaurant or gym. Uh, let's start with you, Diana. Do you, do you think we should look at this again? Is the Ontario government goofing up here? Yeah, I think it's just ludicrous. Like, I mean... It seems a little odd. I don't understand. I was at the Cats game last night, and mm. I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with all these people screaming, um, you know, and they're telling kids not to say trick-or-treat at the doors. It just doesn't add up to me. Mind you, the people that were at the game last night had to show proof of double vaccination, obviously. But mm-hmm. I just think it's just a big slap in the face to the restaurant industry. I mean, how is this overlooked? And, you know, I mean, the, it's not like the restaurants in these other places don't have to show proof of vaccine either. Exactly. What are your thoughts, Ted? Uh, I agree totally. Um, we had the report um, the, uh, on the news a couple minutes ago. They're going to have a, a sellout crowd at Scotiabank tomorrow night for the Leafs, you know, 16000 and change. And they'll be shoulder to shoulder sitting there. I would feel right now. I would feel safer going into a restaurant, a little quiet place, sitting in the back, the two of us, than having 16,000 people screaming. I understand, as Diana said, that everybody has the double vaccination, but still, you know, airing, I'd I'd rather do that than go to a major sports event right now. Yeah. But I just, I I mean, how is that even fair to them, the the restaurant owners? You know, it's, it's just silly. 
It's hard to think what the what the logistic or what the logic is behind this. Will, what are your thoughts? Well, Tim Hortons Field is kind of, is open air. It's outdoors, so I could see that maybe. But no, the math is totally off on this. And there's some, if yeah. they're opening these up, then there's got to be something done for the restaurants too. All right, uh, let's move on to politics. How do you feel post-election? This was the election that nobody wanted, and we ended up with pretty much the exact same thing as what we started, although a little bit, you know, $600 million lighter in the pants. Uh, right now, a new Nanos poll comes out and says that 7 out of 10 Canadians uh, want to see a change in the federal political menu. Are you surprised at that, Diana? Nope. I'm not surprised at all. I mean, I think it feels like the election happened, but it didn't happen. It was like a dream. I was like, okay, here we go. We're having an election next day. Okay, nothing's changed. Move on. It felt to me just like a little blip in things um, that costs a whole lot, really. So, I mean, I feel like, I, I don't know. So do you think people are upset because we spent the money and ended up at the same place? Or do you think things have just changed since the election? I, I think it's a example, mixture of both. I truth think, and reconciliation. Yes, I think it's a mixture of both. I think that people were upset that that money was spent on the election and that the results didn't change. And then I think they're more upset uh, that the leader now is, you know, facing, you know, those the backlash for, for the Truth and Reconciliation Day and uh, just his blatant disregard for, for certain things. Ted, isn't it interesting that I've been reading some dispatches from some political pundits and now the the rumblings seem to be that uh, and you kind of talked about the Scott a while ago uh, that the prime minister really doesn't care anymore. And will he yeah. be stepping down at some point? I would say, really, had they called me, first of all, I would have yelled at him for disrupting me at home. <laughs> that aside, that aside, I would have said, you know what? Put me down as in, I really don't care. Because I would suggest, again, most people going into the election didn't care. They're worried about the pandemic. They're worried about putting food on the table, keeping their kids safe, going to school. And I would suspect with what will happen at the election, which is basically nothing, Canadians now care even less. Go away. Let us do our our thing and come back and talk to us. Because now we have another election coming up next year, (laughs) which is a provincial election, right? So the whole thing again. So I think most people probably would think, you know what? Leave me alone. Thank you, Roundtable. Good to have you all here. Let's uh, talk about the two Michaels, something that was, my goodness, for well over a thousand days on many Canadians' minds, and and then miraculously, uh, once the situation with the Huawei CFO was um, handled, we'll say, uh, was dealt with, then blammo, almost instantaneously, at the same time, the two Michaels were in their in the air on their way back to Canada. Very odd, considering apparently these two incidents were not supposed to be related in any way. Now that the Michaels are back, where are we? What's changed? Are they off the radar now? Let's bring in Gordon Holden, Director of the China Institute and Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta, with us now. Gordon, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you. So the two Michaels have been back for a while. Are they off our radar now? How has this changed Canada-China relations? Well, I think, first of all, they're, they're not off the radar, but they're not dominating the news cycle. You call that weekend uh, when they were released and Meng was sent back. Uh, that time frame, that was the news cycle, the entire thing for everyone. And that couldn't be sustained. Uh, they're back. They'll be, they're staying out of the media largely. Uh, they'll be there, but not as a dominant factor. But you're right. It then pivots to what then happens vis-a-vis the relationship with China and Canada. Uh, does it improve? Does it not? There's an open question. 
Uh, Canada's uh, ambassador to China, Dominic Barton, said recently he's urging Canadian companies to mine China's business potential. Uh, this almost seems contradictory to uh, where we're going. Where are we going? I mean, it certainly doesn't seem like the path is clear. The path isn't clear. There's a lot of fog um, or mist there, to be sure. Uh, but one thing that is surprising is that the trade relationship uh, did not really suffer that much. There was a, a, a partial ban on canola, pork, and beef. But the reality was, in 2020, our exports to China grew substantively, something like 8%, if I recall, at the time when the exports to other countries, major economies, shrank. So in the background, um, unnoticed largely, that relationship trade relationship has been moving forward, despite the fact that Ottawa and Beijing were throwing bricks at each other, at least um, figuratively, uh, the trade was there and solid. And I don't see it disappearing. There's a, a lot of businesses in Canada, particularly in the western part of the country, that do well by, by China. And yet, and yet, you can hardly say the political relationship is sound. So how how much control do we allow China to have? Uh, how much do we depend on them? I mean, during a COVID-19 global pandemic, we saw how we were dependent on them for personal protective gear and such. H- how interwoven do we allow this economy or these economies to become? There's a, a very tough question. I mean, governments, if we're going to change things, governments would have to intervene massively in the private economy, because otherwise companies are going to continue to go where things are, they can get decent quality for a decent price. And quite frankly, the reason the stores are full of Chinese goods is exactly that reason. The best deals with consumers are often Chinese goods. The quality has improved, although not as a up to top standards. There's a lot of very decent stuff you can buy out of China. Um, I, how dependent are we? I think there's already a few hundred thousand jobs in Canada that depend upon China. Uh, it would be a shock to lose that, particularly since that market is growing faster than others. But it, it's not one like the U.S. It comes with, and not that our relationships, trade relations in the U.S. is perfect either. We have pipeline issues, etc. But compared to China, China will continue to pose challenges, security challenges, um, instability, uh, factors that are largely missing if you're treating, trading with U.S. or Europe. So how, how does Can, uh, Canada tread moving forward? Have we learned anything from the two Michaels experience? Well, the government's saying eyes wide open. And I hope that would be the case because past behavior, I don't mind saying too cynical, but I've been around long enough that past behavior usually, not always, but usually points to future behavior. doesn't mean they're going to take hostages tomorrow. It's just that they're going to, that is China, not be afraid to use their power, and their power is increasing. On the other hand, the United States, the USTR, U.S. Trade Representative, um, just finished a uh, dialogue with China. She gave a speech in Washington long ago, and not long ago, and she's sticking with Trump's phase one trade deal, which basically means a deal cut between Beijing and, and, uh, and Washington to buy goods, but primarily U.S. agricultural goods, some of which we compete directly with our own. It's complicated. And I guess my argument would be, don't expect something simple. It's going to be a combination of the distasteful mm. and the useful, um, but it won't be simple.
How big a factor will Taiwan play here, uh, especially considering what happened to Hong Kong? Will is Taiwan heading for the same same place that uh, Hong Kong ended up? You raise that million dollar question, and quite frankly, I think China would love to see Taiwan end up on the same landing strip as Hong Kong. Uh, the difference is that back in '97, um, Hong Kong became legally part of the People's Republic of China. Um, now, in the eyes of the Chinese, that's the case as well for Taiwan. But Taiwan has an army. It is de facto sovereign. It has its own government, democratically elected multiple times. It's a very different, a very different place. It's also quite a ways to the mainland. Um, it's 100, roughly 120 miles, if I recall correctly. Um, that would mean a big effort. China now has a big military, and there's no doubt, given their, given enough time, without uh, foreign support and especially U.S. support, Taiwan would fall. And will we see that? Will we? Will it get to that point? I think the Chinese uh, still run a conservative foreign policy. They do not want an all-out war in the United States, which could be civilization ending. But I think that if the U.S. were to go into a big crisis mode, um, be internally focused, torn apart perhaps over an election, contested election, lose their focus, uh, that could be a time when China would would jump at the chance. I, I think they're, they're still being cautious and waiting, but they're doing detailed planning. Heavens, they've built a, a copy of the Taiwan's presidential palace, a full-scale copy just for the troops to practice on. So they thought that about it. They're, they're, when I lived there, they were also serious about it. But now their military capacity has grown uh, considerably. But I think they'll wait for a moment of U.S. uncertainty or irresolve uh, before they would act. But there's no mm. guarantee. No guarantee. Gordon, Hol- a- Gordon Holden with us, director of the China Institute and professor of political science with the University of Alberta and an ongoing situation between China and really the rest of the world. Gordon, thanks for the time as always. Be well. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Scott Radley is with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now, and normally the whole idea behind these is to promote who's on a show. However, we usually get yakking and that never happens. So let's start <laughs> with, if you want to give a bit, bit of a plug in who's on your show tonight. Well, just before I do that, I'm going to back you up. I'm going to do the. No, don't do that because we'll never get to the show. No, I will. Uh, We're going to be talking about a fascinating case that is in the Supreme Court this week, and it's about whether or not you can make yourself too intoxicated to be liable for the behavior you do. So it's a guy who killed his father after ingesting magic mushrooms voluntarily, and says he had no idea what he was doing. And this is this is a this is a case with enormous implications. Think of all the times people have been drunk or whatever when they've committed yeah. a crime, and what this could mean if the Supreme Court says, "Yeah, you're allowed to use this as a defense." That is uh, that's a that's a tough one. And we're also going to be talking about election signs because there is a riding association president from this area who wants election signs to be banned in the municipal election. No more election hmm. signs. Uh, I don't know that that's the fly, but nonetheless, it's an interesting idea. Well, you know what, the, especially at the municipal level, how do you get to know who people are? You know what, heck, even at the federal level, how do you get to know who people are if you don't see their signs? I mean, you know, you see the familiar color and then go, okay, who's my representative with that party? And then you identify them, no? 
Well, is the is the complaint with municipal politics always that the incumbents have such a massive name recognition advantage yeah. that it's almost impossible to beat them? And now you want to say, okay, we're, we're not. You're not only going to have that. We're not going to let you put your name in front of people's eyeballs. So the only yeah. way that you're going to get people's attention is by knocking on a door. And if you miss them at their house, uh, well, I, this is what I don't think this is going to happen. But it's it is an, it's all about the environment that they don't. They say it's not recyclable most of the signs and so we shouldn't be doing it. we'll see yeah you know considering all the stuff we waste things on uh i mean election signs once ever however many years i don't think that's a big deal and again anything that helps uh, educate the uh, electorate why not all right i want to ask you about your thanksgiving did you have a different one than you did last year did you expand upon what you did last year we had three we had three, so yes. We had <laughs> now that go. was not necessarily by design. It was just um, uh, so we have someone in my family who has an illness that really would not do well if he got right. COVID, and so for caution's sake, uh, we had one dinner with that family, and then one dinner with the other half of the family, and then another dinner with another part of the family. And so, Scott, right now I look just about if I was an, if I was yeah. an inch taller, I'd be round. Yeah, so you got the top button open right now. That's what you're telling us. I I also want to get you. I also, (laughs) apparently everyone does today. Yeah. uh, And and probably for the last 80 weeks or so. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the poll question of the day, uh, because obviously uh, a lot of people are talking about uh, increasing the capacity in sports uh, stadiums, concert venues, that sort of thing, but yet not expanding the capacity in restaurants. Your thoughts on this? It seems odd that the Ontario government is uh, letting people scream on people but not eat across from each other. You know, I don't pretend to be a doctor or a scientist. And, I mean, what's the line from the beginning of this thing? Well, so so theoretically, I am assuming and maybe naively that somewhere one of the doctors that the government is relying upon has said one is safe and one isn't. I, I don't pretend to understand um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, you, you go to, um, you go to the, we were, I was at the Bulldogs game on, um, on Saturday night, their opener. Now, not jam, but they had 4,500 people in there. There were people in close proximity. They were yelling. Um, you know, yeah, I guess most of them had their masks on, but you're right. I mean, what's the, what's the difference? Is there, is there something different when you're chewing that, we're worried about you know talking moistly as our prime minister has described. Mean, maybe because it, maybe it's because you're spitting on the back of their head as opposed to like across from <laughs> yeah, them. That could be. Maybe maybe because maybe maybe you're speaking it. moistly all over the back of their head, you know, as opposed to actually on their face. Maybe that has Scott, something to look, do with it. Here, the thing with this is, and this is just one of the things. How many times in the course of this pandemic have we had some decision made by some level of government of any party, any stripe, any level, and we've gone? Huh? Like, I don't mm. think so. There have been so many times that we haven't really understood and criticized that they're doing this or they're not doing this or this is closed or this is opened. Or, uh, I, uh, you know, I've almost given up on it now. I've almost given up. As yeah. for the opening of sports events, though, to me, there is a certain point at which you have a level of personal responsibility. And if you don't want to be around that, don't go. And if you're willing to take the risk, Fine, go ahead. But, uh, you know, the idea that we're just going to keep everything locked down in perpetuity, at some point we have to say, you can make some choices and you can live with the results. 
And let's and let's be honest, the vaccination rates are soaring. Uh, you know, despite there's still some that are not being vaccinated, uh, we still have an incredible vaccination rate. And if sure. we have that, my goodness. And here's the other interesting thing. I remember every time there was a long weekend or a holiday weekend, uh, the doctors would say, OK, five to 10 days, uh, five to 14 days. We'll figure out, you know, what the uh, response was from people getting together. It'll be fascinating because our cases are going down if in with the next week or so after post thanksgiving uh we don't see an increase then is that it is that over we're, we're vaccinated we can do relatively the same sort of thing and not see some sort of rebound um yeah. i don't yeah. know I, I think you'll have a hard time after this well and you got one other thing to consider too and that's the messaging here messaging here pardon me and and that is if you're telling everybody that we now have like an 85 percent or whatever it is 87 percent vaccination rate and we still can't return to any kind of normal life. An awful yeah. lot of people are going to be saying, well, then why did we get vaccinated? What was the point of this exercise? Now, I know yeah. there are the Delta variants and all the rest, but at a certain point, if you're asking everybody to do all the right things, you've only then got two choices. We stay in perpetual lockdown because COVID is always going to be with us. Or you say, as I said a moment ago, you make some choices for yourself and some decisions and assume some risk even though you've done and we've done all the best we can to try and make ourselves better. I, I don't know how you convince the skeptics for vaccination to go get it if after 87% of their other country yeah. folk have done it, you say, yeah. yeah, but still, we can't do anything new. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. Make sure you're listening after this one and the news at 6 o'clock and also columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Be well. It is 5.59. That is a wrap for the show. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to Will for producing and Ted and Diana for their contributions as well. As always, right here on Hamilton Today, we leave it to you, the CHML listener, to have the last word. Yeah, how do I get one of those uh, Blue Origin tickets? I think my, I think my spouse could use one. <laughs>